Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Um, I will simply add my welcome to uh, everybody else's welcome and my thanks as well. Uh, I won't go through all the names. They've all been mentioned. Uh, but I can already see that this is going to be an extremely good and a well-organized uh, conference. Uh, the fact that it is uh, so well-organized is uh, uh, seen by the fact that uh, I've been given these notes of what to say when I come and stand here. So here goes. Please introduce yourself to the audience. Well, I'm Iraj Bagzadi from IB Taurus, the publishers. Uh, the running order of this particular session is that Professor uh, Salami is going to uh, speak for about 20, 25 uh, minutes. Um, we will then throw things open for a Q&A session. Uh, and then I'm also told that uh, please notify the audience of the event Twitter hashtag LSE Brismes. Okay, I hope you've all made a note of that because uh, I'm not quite sure what that means, but anyway. Uh, um, welcome and introduce Professor Salame. Does anybody really need me to introduce Professor Salame? Um, well, very briefly. Uh, he is the Dean of the Paris School of International Affairs and Professor of International Relations at the Sciences Po uh, uh, in Paris and at Columbia University. He studied law at Saint-Joseph uh, Saint University and the University of Paris, etc., etc. It's quite a long piece here, so will you forgive me if I don't continue? He is an extremely distinguished, well-known uh, person who has written extensively on the subject of the Middle East, including his great book, Democracy Without Democrats. Uh, also published in English by, um, who is it? Oh, by I.B. Torres. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I think without further ado, I will uh, go on to make the most important point that I'm about to make, uh, which is uh, that uh, would you all please make sure that your mobile phones are switched off. Thank you very much indeed. Hassan, over to you. Thank you, Iraj. <clears throat> well, thank, uh, I would like to thank a number of people here for bringing me back into this uh, milieu of Middle Eastern studies. I have, for different reasons, been unfaithful to in the past 10 years, basically because I sort of had to leave academia for a while, doing some other less interesting things, like uh, going into government or working uh, for uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations. So thank you for bringing me back into a milieu I hope <coughs> still considers me as one legitimate member of. <clears throat> for scholars working on the Arab world, I think that the events unfolding since uh, December 2010 when Boaziz set fire to himself in despair. Uh, this series of events looked like a God-sent gift. Here were experts on the Arab world back on TV channels, late evening discussions, not to mention private meetings with high-level officials. A remarkable comeback for them, <clears throat> especially after the beating they have been inflicted 
after 9-11 when uh, a lot of people uh, basically insinuated that they were irrelevant because they were not able to predict the 9-11 events because uh, they didn't join the self-appointed uh, cohort of experts on terrorism or because uh, the Bushes and Blairs and Sarkozy's of this world had some suspicion, in fact sometimes a very determined ostracism vis-a-vis -a, -vis a cohort of experts who basically were accused of being, of showing too much empathy with their own subjects of studies. And therefore, the so-called Arab Spring was a great opportunity for experts on this part of the world to become relevant again and to become part of the story and to come back to the limelight. And this is extremely good and this is extremely legitimate because I do believe that our corporation was somehow unjustly treated by political powers and by the media after 9-11. Now this comeback is also an extremely challenging story because basically what this sort of series of upheavals taking place in the past 15 months or so has shown is that first the ability of this expertise to predict events is questioned again. The same experts who were unable to predict that 9-11 is going to take place are now accused of not having been able to predict this series of upheavals that is taking place. And uh, since elections have taken place in different countries, in Egypt, Tunisia, and elsewhere, they were again unable to predict the kind of electoral triumph the Islamists were able to uh, have in different competitive electoral processes. No less important is the challenge posed to us of being, of going beyond the surface of things. You know, a lot of articles are being written in the press, a lot of interviews, panels, etc. And a lot of good backgrounders are being written by the Carnegie Endowment Crisis Group, of which I should say that I am vice, vice chairman, so I, I, I know what uh, is the quality of the reports they are producing. And now the Doha Center, created by our colleague uh, Azmi Pshara and a few other places all over the world, who are producing extremely well-written, well-researched backgrounder. Some of us are also written instant books on what is happening because the temptation to write an instant book on what is happening is too heavy to not to succumb to. And we are using the social media like everybody else, like the militants, blogs, Facebook, Twitters. And the second challenge, beside this new criticism of our inability to predict things, 
is this challenge to offer our own specific contribution as scholars to the debate. When compared to journalists or public affairs specialists or uh, writers of backgrounders or etc. What as scholars are we adding? What kind of sociological in-depth analysis are we contributing uh, beside the backgrounders written here and there, the instant books written here and there, the excellent uh, features sometimes one would find in the media. I mean, what else are we contributed, contributing as scholars of that area of the world? And the third challenge we are facing right now is the challenge, I think, of our political positioning. Uh, I, I understand that many of us are living where they are living very often in exile because they couldn't live where they should be living. I understand that some British or French or American scholars on the Middle East have been denied visas by authoritarian regimes. I understand that you could feel a lot of compassion for people who have been repressed and jailed and tortured, etc. But the temptation again is very, very serious of sort of losing our academic detachment and showing too much compassion with the victims and the culprits and, and hatred for the culprits and uh, of basically sliding into some form of political positioning in, on, on, on things. So we are facing three major challenges uh, with this so-called Arab Spring. Now, I think that we can overcome this as scholars of the Arab world basically by being the champions of local analysis against sweeping generalization you will find very much on this area. And the champions of a clear in-depth analysis of the context as opposed to just crude singular events. And I suppose three that we can be the champions of objectivity against instinctive alignments, political alignments. And we can be the champions of historical perspectives against the incredibly sort of pressing fascination of the present. And last but not least, I think we should be the champions of complexity in a world very much tempted by simplistic explanation to what is happening. And what is happening, the change that is happening, the forms and the causes of this change are extremely complex. They are complex because first they are extended and still expansive geographically. I think you had a number of events in Tunisia and Egypt and Libya and Syria now in Yemen and elsewhere, Bahrain, but you'll hear of new countries joining this upheaval. And because it is taking a lot of time, the quick fixes 
a lot of people thought of at the very beginning when Boss bin Ali and Mubarak fell all of a sudden. This story of the quick fixes is behind us. Now we know that transitions are going to be bloody, are going to be long, are going to be complex, are going to include a number of different players, the armed forces, the young, the established opposition, the regime, sects, etc. So a number of players. So transitions are going to be long in time. In fact, like many other among you, I believe that we have entered in December 2010 a long cycle, not a short cycle, a long cycle of upheavals and instability for something like three, four, five years, probably even more. And it is expanding geographically as well. So that makes complexity something extremely important for us to grasp clearly and not to come with a single explanation. I, I will certainly be happy to listen to your questions or even objections later. Because I, but one thing I don't want you to tell me is that I have not been exhaustive. I am just going to give a few examples of the various ways through which we can look at this phenomenon without, being, without falling in the metaphor of the blind people with the elephant, like each of them touches part of it and believes that an elephant is what he touches. First, of course, we have here a general rebellion against authoritarianism. So we have the third wave of democratization to a large extent, being transformed into a third wave and a half because it's coming like 20 years later than the third wave we have witnessed elsewhere with very very specific characteristics in this case with um, sort of authoritarian regimes that have been able in the past two decades to do something absolutely remarkable to open up economically while regressing politically. And I don't want to fall into a new uh, sweeping generalization, generalization myself, but I believe that democratization at least can be reduced to two processes. One is freedoms and the other one is the organization of power and of representation. And I do believe that as far as freedoms are concerned, the 20 past years have been great. Not so much because the ruling regimes have been open to freedom, but because basically they were unable to stop the flow of opinions, of media, of ideas, of information because of the uh, information technology revolution. On the other hand, as far as the power is concerned, only cosmetic things were added was parliaments that were unable to really question the government and with a lot of ability <coughs> to renew authoritarians through new forms, in particular through the association of new members of the business community in the ruling of those countries. So what we are witnessing now is, I would say, vague three and a half of democratization finally reaching our part of the world 
after two decades where we despaired of seeing this third wave running in, across the Mediterranean into that part of the world. But there is something else in this upheaval that has a lot to do, in my view, with the globalization process. I mean, if you... Uh, Hernando de Soto recently went back to the Boazizi case and he found that what the, the, the fruits he was selling were bought on credit and that he could not repay that credit, etc. He, he went into the sort of microeconomics of this. And what we see everywhere is what I call the moral revolution. That is a sort of an implicit condemnation of the globalization process as implemented in these countries as a process that has benefited basically a very small number of people around the government but not the large number of them. So that is why corruption is playing a very central role in, in, in many areas, by the way, I would see corruption as coming before political participation as the number one problem raised by these rebellions. I felt that very strongly in Tunisia immediately after the revolution everybody was talking about what the Ben Ali's owned in Tunisia rather than how Ben Ali ruled the country, the Ben Ali's. This also played in different places. It played in Kuwait when this parliamentarian scandal uh, erupted. It played in, uh, in the social media concerning many, many countries. It also played in the case of Rami Makhlouf in Syria and Ahmed Az in Egypt, etc. There are now symbols, icons of corruption, of concentration of wealth, of diversion of, uh, of economic power towards specific hands rather than the multitude. And this plays a very central role basically because families all over the place understood that we are in a new, in a new era when it comes to economics. In many, many neighborhoods in Cairo, you'd see families putting more than 50% of their revenues in the education of their kids only on computers and the English language. Only on that. So this is beside their normal uh, uh, schooling in, in, in government or private schools. Because they understood that basically you needed computers and you need English in order to be part of the new economy. But the new economy, the new economy itself, looked like treacherous, like even more <coughs> supportive of the concentration of wealth through nepotist privatizations, through all kinds of practices than the old, the old economy. And this is present everywhere, and this is, in my view, one of the reasons, one of the reasons the Islamists are gaining, as we see everywhere. One of the reasons, not the single reason, probably not the most important reason, but it's one reason beside organization, beside the habit of getting organized in authoritarian m milieu,
Beside also the feeling that you should be grateful to those who fought against the dictatorship and were ready to be jailed and to be exiled as the Islamists were, Muslim brothers among others, during the time of dictatorship, I would say that add to that the fact that the Islamists have had the moral high ground in the past years or so. Uh, and this explains as well uh, their rise in the election. Everywhere three, and I think this is something that would make uh, an, an incredibly good material for PhD dissertation, is what one can call a revolt of the periphery against the center. This is extremely clear in countries like Jordan, where East Jordanian, who had been the pillars of the system, are now revolting against the central government. It's even more clear in neighboring Syria, where uh, cities, rural cities, that had been extremely supportive of the Ba'ath Party, like Dara'a, like Raqqa, or even Homs, are rebelling much more than Aleppo or Damascus against the uh, present regime. There is everywhere this, and, and, and it all started in the Tunisian hinterland, in Sidi Bouzid and not in the Tunis capital. I think all this is not an accident. In fact, the new economic opening of the past 20 years has also a, ge has has also a geographic translation, giving a lot to uh, the main cities and very, very little to other cities uh, everywhere. Then comes fourth, of course, in this complex picture, identity politics. It's everywhere. It's mainly sectarianism, Shia versus Sunni, everywhere in the Gulf, everywhere in the Levant, certainly. And it's also a identity politics in a sort of a revolt in, in Tunisia and to a certain extent in Algeria against French educated elites. Uh, in a mixture of Arabization and Islamization you could feel almost everywhere in North Africa right now. The problem is that every time you start this identity politics it is not the one you have in mind who could be the victim of but somebody else. I mean you can start an anti-French educated elite movement in Tunisia as you could see sometimes in, in Mahda project. And you end up ostracizing the Berbers or the Kabyles, and not the French educated elite who would have fled anyway across the Mediterranean. Uh, and this is also something you'll feel in Algeria. Uh, and more to the east, you can start something about a minority rule regime and end up in a civil war. Uh, so sectarianism has its flaws as well, and identity politics is, is, uh, is something that is extremely dangerous to probably manipulate. My advice for newcomers to the field is not to be too much impressed by the high level of sectarianism you could feel today. It's like fever, my friends. I'm now 60, 
year old and in the past 40 years I have seen sectarianism in my home country Lebanon in Syria in Iraq where I al almost died because of that and in different places uh, of the Middle East going in cycles in cycles there are times where sectarianism is very high and there are times where hundreds of thousands of young men get married to hundreds of thousands of young women from the other side, from another sect, etc. So I, I, I sort of warn you against thinking that sectarianism was the kind of extreme fever it is into right now is the normal state of things. It keeps, I mean, when I, when I went to Baghdad in 2003, I was extremely uh, surprised to see how many mixed couples, mixed neighborhoods, etc. you will find here and there, much more than in Lebanon or anywhere else. So don't take the present very high fever. And keep in mind something else. Keep in mind that the politicization of sectarianism is something that does not happen accidentally. It happens because somebody needs it. It happens because somebody thinks that this is his last chance to survive in power. It happens for many, many reasons. So don't take it as the normal state of things and don't take it as an accidental or a spontaneous, a spontaneous movement in people who rediscover their basic identity or their tribal identity after having forgotten that. And therefore, it is something that could disappear before you are my age. It could disappear or it could climb down as has been the case uh, in the past. So I'm not, <laughs> for being an old <laughs> former minister of culture, believe you me, I don't take culture that seriously. <laughs> I don't take uh, culture as a sort of a form of a predetermined pre behavior in political terms. I still believe that individuals make their own choices and tend when they are given the opportunity not to accept to be parked like animals in sects and tribes and etc. Another uh, sort of uh, way of looking at it is that most of these countries are in transitions. And transitology has been a big science in political science in the 90s concerning Eastern and Central Europe and we badly need a new form of transitology. I should confess that I have been personally involved in some processes of transi transition in some countries uh, now undergoing an upheaval. And I can tell you that beside the big ideas, there are certain things one should keep in mind. For example, I was stunned in Tunisia and Egypt and Yemen how much Islamists do prefer in the as the end of the transition, a parliamentary system rather than a presidential one. This is very, very central. If you listen to Ghannouchi, if you listen to Mohammed Badia, this is very, very central in their mind. And you need to discuss this. You need to get prepared to do things. Because things are not predetermined. 
And therefore, the quality of those in charge of the transition, the quality of the people, their real commitment to institutionalize political participation is absolutely central. And you will find all kinds of people, smart people and not so smart people, uh, people who are ready to adjust and people who are not ready to adjust. If I look at how Tunisians are now dealing with their external economic affairs, it's much more promising than uh, uh, those guys in Cairo, those Islamists basically, who have some difficulty dealing with the secular process they have to deal with. Because getting $2.9 billion of financing from the IMF is a secular process where your religious beliefs are not central, basically. So the quality of the people, their flexibility there is extremely important in transition terms and also their view of the past. It is their hatred of the presidential, extremely, extremely strong presidential regimes that makes them now very much look for parliamentary world. So I do believe that transitions are going to produce a mosaic at the end. Because I, the more I look into the detail of these transitions, the more I see that they are not necessarily going into the same direction, depending on the strengths of the Islamists, on the quality of the people in charge of the transition, and of the kind of coalitions that are underway. And one interesting process now you could look at almost everywhere is that most of the Muslim Brother movements do prefer to have as allies secular parties rather than in principle, in identity terms, much closer allies that is the Salafist. In, and you see that almost across the board uh, in that part of the world. And of course, and of course, in order not to be too long, but of course there is a dimension one cannot really forget, which is the geostrategic one. All this is not happening while regional powers and external powers are just quiet and watching this like, uh, like you are listening to me. No, they are interactive. And this is normal. This is not a plot. This is not a conspiracy. When an important part of the world, important because you have oil, because you have Israel, because you have many reasons uh, to uh, consider that this is an important, is going through a process of, of change, you rush and try to defend your interests. This is only normal. And after a few weeks of sort of uh, uh, not uh, very uh, dignified reaction to what is happening, both regional powers and international powers have rushed to defend their interests, to build new alliances, and to try and have some kind of an impact on what is happening. This does not mean that any of those powers have incited the whole process, as I read some, in some places. It only means that they have reacted in order to protect their interest. But in general, one thing that you... I remember I, uh, one of my daughters was asking me when I came back from a long stay in Cairo in December, what is the most important thing you come back with? I told her, look, it is the first time that I spent 10 days in Cairo and nobody utters the word America to me. Uh, and this is absolutely new 
if I compare it to the many stays I did in the past 40 years or so. Uh, there is something going uh, in that part of the world that at the same time uh, is an illustration of the weakening of the so-called big powers, Western in particular, in that part of the world. And that does not only illustrate that, but in certain ways accelerates that decline as well, I would say. But for this, we can have uh, more discussion right now. Thank you. Well, strong support for democracy and uh, meritocracy in the Middle East. And then Islamic scholars have said, yes, but you can't use these surveys. It's complex, you know, you have to understand the culture. They don't mean by democracy what we mean and so on. But so some people have been predicting for quite a long time, but others have been concerned with the complexities. This is just uh, a point, maybe. As you wish. Yeah. Yeah. Good. As you wish. Um, I wanted to know your opinion on the um, new coalition governments that are popping up, not just in the Middle East, but also in Europe and also in this country. Is it new? Thank you, Professor Salame, for an enriching uh, um, lecture. I have two uh, questions. The first one is on the, uh, this sort of globalization and how it is part of triggering of the uh, revolt in the Arab world. But in a way, the region had always been a place where trade and trade routes and globalization were, were prominent. So what do you think is the uh, difference between uh, that previous historical uh, uh, liberal, if you like, economy and the uh, brief period of state centralized economies in places like Egypt, Syria, and the other socialist republics, and even in the, in the Gulf, and the recent last 20 years? So what is really the difference? And isn't it um, um, like um, the second point I want to make is this is a cycle of sectarianism. Um, there had always been three elements uh, that trigger off this kind of cycle. Uh, the first one, we know that it is you know, the, the local powers there, 
plus the colonial influence that works with these colonial powers and also some historical grievances and lack of equal distribution of wealth. But again, in the last 10 years, since 2003 with the occupation of Iraq, we find that the Western powers institutionalized yet another sectarian system along the, the same pattern that the French did in, in Lebanon. And therefore, this has become a pattern that quite a lot of aspiring identity politics people are, are looking forward to establishing their own ethnic or sectarian, either Islamic or ethnic emirates, while the global side is trying to create these oil emirates everywhere, whether they're the Kurdish enclave in northern Iraq or the Benghazi emirate in Libya. So in a way, there is a, a speeding up of the process where this sort of neoliberal global economy is working uh, and being institutionalized by foreign powers, plus the regional powers you mentioned. Well, uh, these are all important questions. Thank you for uh, raising them. Let me first address the question of uh, uh, the sort of uh, a very old question. In fact, uh, uh, it has been uh, co-substantial co of area studies since, I, uh, since they have existed. To what extent some areas are specific when it comes to democracy? My answer is that all areas are specific when it comes to democracy. But how serious specific is something else? I never believed that this part of the world was fundamentally different when it comes to uh, sort of uh, people calling for some kind of political participation or dignity or human rights. Uh, of course there are nuances you'll find everywhere. I mean gender issue is different in that part of the world but it's also different in Japan and it's also different uh, in different places. So cultural factors do play a role but not to that point. Samuel Huntington made a fortune by telling us that Catholics can never be real Democrats and all of a sudden he had Spain and Portugal and most of Latin America becoming Democrat. So he changed his view that Catholics can be, uh, can be uh, Democrats and some people are now changing their view and thinking that Muslims can also be uh, extremely good Democrats. So culture does play a role, but to a certain, to a certain, to a certain uh, uh, level, but not, never constitutes a real obstacle. Uh, so there was an Islamic exception, there has never been an Islamic exception. In fact, the history of democracy is a history of a very minority regime until 20 years ago. It's only in the 1990s early 1990s that for the first time in the history of humanity more than half of the countries of the world and more of the people living in the world has been living under a democratic regime but until the 1990s the rule was authoritarianism and the exception was democracy and in fact the number of democracies in the first half of the 20th century even in Europe went down so, uh, if Muslims did not have so many democratic regimes, I would say they were not alone. They were in good company with Tsarist and communist Russia, with uh, 
China, China before and after the communist revolution and with most countries in Latin America and some countries in Europe as well. So it is not that there was something typically Islamic or Arab that made a difference. I'm sorry, I, I know that until a year ago, Alfred Stepan was still saying uh, uh, there is something specific about the Arabs who are unable to become Democrats. And I thought that this was something that is factually unacceptable and I would say politically a bit dubious uh, to say that one, you, you, you cannot be Democrat, but all the others can. I mean, it's, it's, it's very hard to accept. Now, those who believed that there was no cultural obstacle have been saying exactly the opposite. For like, but I would say for too long, for too long. And what they have to explain is why we did not have that like 20 years ago or 30 years. As you said, they have been saying this for decades. This is true. But probably we did not, we were not smart enough to understand how authoritarianism in that part of the world can redeem itself, can reinvent itself, can be able to overcome the democratic challenge. And this has not been explained by those who believed in the first place that there was no cultural obstacle to that. Now the questions raised by uh, uh, my colleague Madawi. I think I, I agree with what, uh, with, with what you said. I mean, I, I will never forget that when I, I, I landed in Baghdad in 2003, I could see uh, American generals going into the street and asking any Iraqi they would meet, hello, how are you? What's your name, Mohammed? How are you, Mohammed? Are you Sunni or Shia? And I, and I could see my Iraqi friends becoming yellow. I mean, I mean, and starting to say, my mother is Shia from Najaf, but my father is Sunni from Mosul. Ah, that's too complicated. Well, I mean sectarianism can become relevant. The same Iraqis who were disgusted to say if they were Sunni or Shia, when they understood that what the American Bremer-led administration wanted them to be is to be sectarian, they started saying, hello, I'm Muhammad and I'm Shia. Because they basically understood that the political language of the time is to show your sectarian, your sectarian, the sectarian element in your complex identity. Instead of saying, I am Muhammad, I am engineer, I am Muhammad, I am Shia, because that was the relevant language to, 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 to talk, to, uh, to use with, uh, with, uh, with, with the American uh, administration of that time. What I want to say here is that, yes, anybody inside or outside can use sectarianism as a way of controlling some part of, uh, of, the, of the country. But then, when the fever becomes popular, we need other uh, means, intellectual means, to study the process than international relation, to talk in discipline terms. International relations, well, divide and rule uh, is not something that's entirely unknown to a British audience. But uh, this is not the whole story. The story is that sometimes it becomes, it succeeds. And therefore you have a group who believes that it is really threatened by the other group and start vigilante groups and start to defend itself and start to train and start etc. And then you need other 
disciplines to help you understand the process. And these disciplines, in my view, are certainly anthropology, but also mere populism. Because if you look at this process, how they is also populism. That is the idea that your elites are terrible because they have been cooperating with the elites of the other group. And therefore, it's an anti-elitist. Uh, this was very clear in Bosnia, for example. You have to, to destroy uh, your, your, your regular elite because your elite is too open to the other group. You have to destroy it and you have to build that. That is why the process becomes, though incited by a foreign power sometimes, becomes a local phenomenon and needs to be studied as, as a sort of a moment uh, uh, of, of, of populism that could veer into pure fascism. Because very often, very often, when you study this, you, you start looking at the victims of the group, of a militarized sectarian group, among the other members of the other group. But we should look also into what sectarianism makes within the group. And you will see there that a group that is taken by a sectarian fever is first and foremost the enemy of itself in the sense that everybody becomes a suspect. Uh, everybody becomes uh, a view, view, is viewed as somebody who is not giving enough to the community, not allowing the kids to go and be trained, not participating in night vigil, not participate, not giving money, not accepting informal economy and still sticking to the formal economy. So what it does to the group within, from within, is almost as important as what sectarianism does when a militarized sect starts attacking, uh, starts attacking another one. Thank you, Monserrate from St. Andrews. Uh, two questions, please. To what extent uh, do you believe that the counter-revolution in, in the Middle East can prevent the transition towards uh, a new phase in the, uh, in the Middle East? We can see that uh, the council, uh, military council in Egypt and in Yemen, we can see it very heavily, and now in Syria. There is internal and external counter-revolution. They might prevent that transition. Uh, the other question, please. Uh, to, uh, will the West promote or support democracy in the Middle East or liberal democracy in the Middle East? Thank you very much. Thanks. Um, uh, you you, you uh, talked about a, ki a kind of um, a, a return or turn to a new kind of transitology and you also pointed how the 90s uh, part of Middle East scholarship were engaged in so to speak searching what ought to be a search for 
what we hoped to find, democracy. At the end of the millennium, it turned out there wasn't much uh, transition to uh, democracy, despite of parliaments, elections, and so on in the 90s. So in the last 10 years, we have had a quite strong critique of the logical-inspired way of studying Middle Eastern politics. Nowadays, there is then a critique of that critique, so to speak. So I am wondering if you can elaborate a bit on what your idea about a new kind of Tragetology will be, and how to avoid the kind of pitfalls which we saw in the 90s. Thank you. Thanks a lot, uh, Dr. Hassan, for your uh, distinguished speech. Um, I would like to ask about this balance between democracy and the strong power, because. Now, after the revolution, we feel that the, the, the central power is losing too much, and the, the situation in the Arab countries, most of the Arab countries after the revolution, become a bit loose. There is no center of power, and there is a lot of different elites that, you know, now uh, is disputing about the, the, the taking the power. And what is the result of this? Is this can help to achieve some kind of any economic development? and the distribution of wealth, or this will make create a cycle of uh, deterioration and this will lead to more trouble in, in the country. And in this case, what the, the new elites, the Islamists, the secular, all the time they try to create some kind of consensus in Egypt, in Syria, in, uh, in, in Tunisia, but in the same time they are, I am not sure, they don't wor uh, can't work together for a longer time without any splits, and they may be some of them feeling that any succession or uh, if the Islamists succeed to achieve something, the secular will try to prevent them through going to the street again and to protest against the government. And the same, if the, uh, if the Islamists swear in the, didn't take the power, they also can use the same strategy against the secular power. So in such situation, how can the democratic, democratic system can work. And what we mean by democracy in this regard, are we seeking for a kind of a liberal democracy or something right. different that is fit to the Middle East? Uh, the question is very clear. Uh, I, will, uh, I will sort of uh, bring together uh, two or three questions concerning, uh, concerning uh, sort of um, financing and trade and economics. I do believe that there is a huge domain that needs to be studied now. Uh, I saw the paper uh, written by uh, Basam Awadallah and uh, one of his colleagues uh, on the economics of the Arab Spring. But I think the domain is, is a huge. A country like Egypt you are mentioning is in immediate need of 35 to 40 billion dollars in financing for this year only, for this year only. And uh, I can tell you, I can tell you that international, uh, international financial organizations are having, uh, an and also some, some Gulf money as well, 
are having a serious problem with Egyptians. It's easy to say uh, these are imperialists and these are anyway uh, looking for political conditions. And this would be true, by the way. This would be true. These are uh, not very democratic institutions and, and, and the Gulf money is looking for some kind of political uh, conditions. Still, there is a real problem in Egypt as well, in the receiving country as well. Basically, SCAF is taking an extremely nationalist line on all this. They were on the verge of signing with the IMF in, in April, and they changed their mind all of a sudden without giving any... And they fired the Minister of Def Finance, Samir Radwan, who had, uh, who had uh, negotiated it. And the Muslim Brothers, that is the next government, is entirely unaware. I mean... People try to find an interlocutor, I can tell you, and they can't find an interlocutor, although 35 to 40 billion dollars are needed before the end of, the, of this year. One of the biggest problems we are uh, now having is that most of these countries uh, where a revolution has taken place are poor, and are becoming poorer while the revolution is underway and the transition is taking place. And therefore, when at the end of the constitutional process, say in a year or in a year and two months from now, finally elections take place in Tunisia or some kind of stabi institutional stability takes place in, in Egypt, Tunisia and Egypt and Yemen and Bahrain and others, and certainly Syria, where probably the central bank has lost already uh, 10 out of 18 billion dollars of foreign reserves in the past few months. These countries will all be poorer than they had been at the beginning of the revolution. And there is a very, very, very deep worry that basically some populist movement is able then to link democratization to poverty by saying you were much better until under dictatorship. And it's true that revolutions are financially costly, financially costly. And I think we are not finding in the new leaders enough courage to say it is costly. In Tunisia, of course, they have understood something extremely important, which is that the stability of Libya is absolutely crucial to the Tunisian economy. Uh, but who is going to be able to produce stability in Libya and certainly not the Tunisian leadership? So we are here facing a very serious problem that could really bring democracy into, into unfavorable light uh, in a year or two from now because these countries are going to be, uh, to be poorer. Now, one thing is clear on the other hand, in the Egyptian and Syrian case, and that's something that uh, Madawi alluded to, that is, we are having a battle between old money and new money. And what people are rebelling against has been the new money amassed in the past two decades. Old money happens to be most of the time on the side of the revolution. This is very clear in Tunisia, and this is very clear uh, in some other places. In fact, one dimension of what is happening is a fight between old money and new money. Old money through traditional trade and traditional uh, um, rural uh, uh, urban uh, relations 
and new uh, basically on privatization, on the control of uh, cellular uh, telephony and uh, on uh, direct relation uh, with the government to obtain license for inputs of consumption goods. And you could see the difference between old money and new money. Uh, there is a battle, an, an implicit battle taking place all over the place between these, uh, these two things. The second question I would like to address very rapidly is the question of transitology. I think what we have learned from the third wave, and we need to look at very carefully in the case of this Arab wave, if there is one, is that now we know that democracy is like a miniskirt or is like capitalism, when it becomes uh, universalized, uh, it doesn't keep the same meaning everywhere. Anything that is not local anymore and becomes a universal feature necessarily becomes very different, very different. So there is a diversification in democracy, and the Westminster democracy is not what you see in the 116 countries, Freedom House, uh, considers as democratic. Therefore, one thing that we have learned mainly from the study of new democracies, but also from some old ones as well, is that the word democracy should always be used with an adjective. Uh, nepotist democracy, sectarian democracy, open democracy, one-man, one-vote democracy, uh, uh, consociational democracy. I mean, democracy is now so diversified, like capitalism, that it is very hard to talk of the same thing wherever. Uh, this is one lesson, I think, that is extremely important. And the second lesson that is equally important is that you have scales of democracy. And you cannot just look at what is happening to the central institution. You have to look into what is happening on the city democracy, on the region democracy, on the state democracy, on the uh, sort of area democracy, and in world politics democracy, in the Security Council, in the IMF, etc. So there are scales of democracy. And because people are now, thanks to social media, among other things, extremely aware of how decisions are taken concerning them on their own level, on the mayor level, on the, on the, on the province level, on the Brussels level, on the European level, on, on the universal level, they want, much more than in the past, to be sure that the various scales of democracies are taken into consideration, that people are not only democratic uh, with the election of the parliamentary election, that the municipal council is also democratic, and that the security council back in New York is also, is also democratic. I think these are the two major lessons uh, one has to take. The third one has to do with this presidential versus parliamentary thing, because I do believe that in new democracies in Latin America and Central Europe, some countries have chosen a presidential, some countries have chosen a parliamentary one, and this has had an incredible amount of effect on the disaffection of politics and on political coalitions as well. And that is why the fact that the Muslim brothers in particular are looking for parliamentary systems is extremely, uh, is extremely uh, important. Finally, of course there is a counter-revolution, but who, who would have thought that an upheaval like the one we are going through that is expanding in time and in geography is not going 
to entice the beginning of a counter-revolution. I, I know no revolution in the world without a counter-revolution trying to, to sort of uh, squeeze it. But my belief is that we will not have a single clear-cut result at the end. You know, in the past 50 years, I will take one minute and the session is over. In the past 50 years, we have seen people announcing to us that this part of the world has seen the end of monarchies. Because the 50s has killed so many monarchies in Egypt and uh, Iraq and uh, Yemen and, and, and elsewhere. But in fact, what we have seen in the past 20 years is that many republics were becoming monarchies. So our prediction of the 50s that everybody's becoming Republican was not only untrue because seven countries remained uh, monarchical, but also because many republics became monarchical in Syria and Libya, uh, Yemen, and, uh, and elsewhere. And in the 60s, we were taught, and I personally believe, that the whole part, this whole part of the world is becoming socialist and we will end up without capitalism, and I was very happy and enthusiastic for it. And what we have seen after 1973 is that we didn't even have capitalism. I, we, we should pray to have capitalism. We have rentier economy, unproductive rentier economy, spilling over from oil-producing countries into non-oil-producing countries who started living and dealing with their own budget as if they were oil countries as well. So rentier economy overcame not only socialism, but also, uh, 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 also capitalism. So for those among us who now are certain that this part of the world in five years from now will have the same political color all over, I'm just saying be prudent. I have already been cheated twice. I am ready to be cheated third time. Thank you all. Well, what a wonderful start to a conference. Very stimulating, very thought-provoking. And uh, obviously, there's much material in there that, uh, that needs a considerable amount of attention. Not least, if I may just make one small comment here, uh, in terms of, uh, well, in terms of the, uh, the points that you began with, namely the role of experts in this whole um, uh, stew, um, and I would simply here add a plea to experts. <clears throat> no, 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 that of course, that goes without saying. But uh, no, but to really make an effort to ensure that their communication skills match those of the politicians and match those of the journalists, because without those communication skills, it's very easy for the politicians to roll their eyes and say, well, you know, we've heard it all before. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that, that just like doctors have uh, nowadays have part of their courses, um, the, the, the point about learning skills and communication with patients and so on and so forth, so I think the, the academic world and the world of experts could do with a little more thought about how to communicate the tremendously important ideas and information and knowledge that they have. Anyway, that's my uh, little uh, 
point to, to be made, but I just would like to, um, to thank you enormously again for a very stimulating talk, very wonderful beginning to this conference, and uh, will you please all join me again in thanking <laughs> Ratan Salameh.